Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Good morning again. It's lovely to have you all here. And if you've got that uh, reading open, uh, you'll be helped by just uh, keeping that there from your pew Bibles. It's page 1098. You might want to dial it up on your phone uh, if you like to follow there. Um, And we're going to just spend a few moments thinking about these verses from John 19. Well, I wonder, when was the last sign that you saw... That made you laugh. I've got a couple to uh, share with you. This is a good one. Sure we can, says the TNT van going into the bridge. How about this one? The Republican, where the news really hits home, van entering into the front room. Indeed, I discovered if, and this is obviously hypothetically, if a preacher were really scraping the barrel for a, um, a, an illustration to start his uh, Sunday sermon, he would find, courtesy of the good people uh, at Google, a veritable treasure trove of catchy and witty uh, church signs, mainly produced by our imaginative friends in North America. Uh, some of them are verbally arresting. How about this one? Some are painfully corny. Some are theologically quite acute. And some are accidental. Now, I don't know whether you can make this out, but the S has fallen off. Ain't Peter's church. Quite right, it's Jesus's, not his. Now, over time, you will have seen all sorts of signs around this church, I'm sure. Uh, They're always wonderfully produced. It's a good moment to say thank you to Ian Christie, who does so faithfully and diligently all the wonderful graphics. But I wonder whether it's ever occurred to you that signs and church, particularly actually ironic signs and church, go back a long way. John 19, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Thank you, Alex. There was a sign, a sign that caused controversy and confusion. It's a sign that gets right to the heart of what Christians believe. And it asks a key question for all of us, what exactly is happening at the cross? Who is it who's actually hanging there? And what does it achieve that he is? Now, that may be something that you've thought about a great deal uh, throughout your your life. Perhaps you love the cross, you connect with those words in the hymn, you cherish the old rugged cross. Then again, it it may be something that actually uh, you you feel is quite puzzling, troubling, 
even. Why did Jesus have to meet this terrible end? Was it really necessary? And, and what does it mean, if anything, for me right now? Well, either way, I hope this morning we're going to bring that cross alive for you again. And this sign that was over Jesus' cross is a great place to start because it's ironic. And its irony tells us that as we look at the cross, there's way more than meets the eye. As was the custom of the time, uh, the sign over the criminal will tell of their error. So the crime they'd committed. In this case, Jesus, in the eyes of the leaders of the time, he had claimed blasphemous authority, well above his station. And now, look, he's met with his consequences on the cross. But as we'll see to those who had the eyes to see it, it also tells the sign of his honor, not just his error, but his honor. In a world that where practically not a soul believed in it, that sign spoke a truth about Jesus that actually had never been more true. Here, hanging on the cross, was God's chosen king. One sign, one event, two realities, if you like. One immediate, obvious, passing reality, but then also this other hidden and deeper and more enduring one. And it's with that kind of approach that I'd love to just walk through this account of uh, the crucifixion. And I hope that as we consider it, we're going to find encouragement to persevere in following Christ through it and, and also find real rest and real joy in the life-changing accomplishment of Jesus' death. Okay, the first pair of realities I want to focus on is the cross and the crown. The, the cross, first of all. At first, we see only the cross. Verse 17, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, to all appearances, this is the sad but inevitable conclusion of Jesus' increasingly unsuccessful ministry. When it was just the miracles, he had thousands of followers, but then came the hard teaching uh, people couldn't stomach it. Some disciples stayed on. Now even the 12 had fled, with the exception of only one, though let's not forget those courageous and faithful women who were still with him here. And then finally, the powers that be had got him, and Pilate had decreed his sentence. Now, I don't know whether you, uh, it struck you as it did me, the, the, the Gospels say so little about the actual crucifixion itself. Jesus would have been forced to carry the horizontal cross piece, the patibulum of the cross, out to where the upright posts were permanently in place on the execution site. That was beside the main highway on the way into Jerusalem so that uh, any would-be criminal would have a powerful deterrent as they went into the city. And then he was laid out uh, on the cross piece. He was fixed to it by iron nails driven through the top of his wrists. And then once the cross piece was raised by ladder or pulley to the upright, uh, his feet would be placed one over the other, and they would have been nailed below, and then the crucified left to expire. The Roman writer Cicero called it a most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. No Roman citizen was permitted to undergo crucifixion because it was such a uh, a terrible thing, however heinous their crime. 
And that's what it looked like. For those who watched him, many, they saw him die on the cross, and that was it, a humiliating end. And perhaps some today would share that perspective. Jesus, great life, inspiring teaching. Shame it was cut so short, uh, so brutally, and so abruptly. Frankly, that can even be our feeling as Christians, and even the experience of our own lives as Christians. At times, we, all we see is the cross. It didn't go well for Jesus. And we may feel today, quite frankly, it's not going very well for us either. Perhaps you're going through a moment of life where all you can see is, is the pain. All you can see is the bad. There's broken hopes. There's, there's tragedy or there's frustration. And to you, perhaps right now, it feels like, frankly, there's not a lot else. And perhaps on top of that, you feel like you've, you know, you've made an effort. You've gone God's way. But you see only the cross. But getting back to Golgotha for a moment, those who look a little bit further see not just a cross. They see a cross, but also a crown. A crown. I did the BBC's news quiz uh, this week. I don't know, there's maybe a few of you who kind of uh, have moments of, you know, uh, needing to refocus when you do that kind of thing. Uh, I got one out of seven. Uh, amongst the six things I got wrong was a bit of coronation trivia. Uh, I didn't know that visitors can, at the moment, go and stand on the precise spot in Westminster Abbey where King Charles will be crowned as long as they take their shoes off. It's called the Cosmati Pavement, uh, and it's there in Westminster Abbey. Now, of course, that place of glory could not be further from the grit of Calvary, where Jesus died, but still... I think John wants us to see this moment as a, as a coronation of sorts. Now, the first hint of this is through Pilate's eyes. The, the Jewish leaders, remember, wanted Pilate to write something else on the sign. They wanted to say, no, no, write this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate wasn't having any of it. Perhaps he was fed up with them. Then again, perhaps he believed Jesus was some sort of a king. And he said, verse 22, what I've written, I've written. And when you put this moment in the broader context of his ministry, it becomes even clearer. That sign was saying, here is a king. Back in chapter 3, Jesus had spoken to his followers. He said, look, I'm going to be lifted up to save you. Lifted up, I'm going to be exalted to a place of honor like a king. Then on Palm Sunday, we thought about it earlier, he said to them, don't be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. In comes the donkey. Who's on the donkey? The king. If it's Jesus, he must be the king. And then in his final hours, he spoke of how God was going to glorify him, like he was expecting some kind of victory lap, the kind of thing that the sovereign would get when he was returning from a victorious war. And we're waiting for all of this to really kind of come through to fruition, and here it comes. Jesus is lifted up, only not quite as we expect. He is crowned, only not quite as we imagined. He is glorified, but it's the cross that is his throne. His outward defeat is actually the moment of greatest victory. In fact, it's the moment he will defeat the greatest enemies of humankind, death and Satan themselves, right there. And in that sense, Jesus was never more king than he is 
right on the cross. The sign over his head, the king of the Jews, was never more true of him than at that moment. And in fact, there's one other beautiful detail here, another piece of God-ordained choreography that says even more. We're told, John tells us, the sign, verse 20, is written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So here is a king for the Jews, yes, but also the Romans, Latin, and every language of law or government. And also a king of the Greeks, too, and every other language of culture and philosophy and so forth. The idea is this king is the king of the whole world, a king for you as well, and a king for me. So I wonder, just stepping back, when you imagine the cross and you look at it, what do you see? Perhaps you've got a cross that you wear around, around uh, your neck or you see a cross on a church somewhere on the way to work. When you see that, what do you, what do you see? Do you see the place that your saviour was proclaimed victorious? I mentioned the coronation earlier. This, um, this week, the Church of England published the revised Book of Common Prayer. Um, the Book of Common Prayer has the name of the sovereign in it. Um, and they had to republish it because they had to swap out all the Elizabeths for the Charles. But in an unfortunate case of overzealous find and replace, the reference to Elizabeth I was also replaced with Charles. <laughs> so that means the latest publication of our dear mother church proclaims Charles as King of Ireland and France, but not Wales and Scotland, as well as England. Just a perfect kind of post-Brexit gesture of rapprochement. That's just what we need, isn't it? Anyway, whatever we make of the British monarchy, if you love it or not, the kingship of Jesus is universal. Every nation. You know, if you're going to be interested in coronation day or not, I pray that you would feel only one thing about this coronation on the cross. I pray that every one of us might be able to feel the glory of it, to say, yes, that Jesus, that is my king too. I want to live by the values of his kingdom. I want to share in his kingly victory. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But just before we do, there's another dimension to what we see here that I think really helps us as we try to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If Jesus is being crowned, at the very moment that he's been crucified, then triumphant Christian living may well include suffering and even humiliation. You know, I wonder whether you've heard those kind of messages, you know, triumphant living, and and what you hear is like this idea that everything's going to go well for you. Well, the crown and the cross come together. If we follow Christ, if our lives reflect his perfect way, the apostles teach that we are going to encounter our own crosses. We will face moments of real struggle, sometimes precisely because of our faith, actually. And equally, like the cross, it may be that at those moments, they are actually the moment of greatest victory. They're the moments the Lord is coming into our life and reshaping us to honor him. So in those moments... In those moments, I'm sure we're familiar with them. You know, all of life's circumstances seem to contradict the claim that God is actually real. Well, in those moments, 
we can look to the cross. We can remember that though his kingship was hidden, Jesus was still king. I quoted that hymn earlier. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That's the cross and the crown. Okay, the second pair of realities is the end and the goal. The end, first of all, the end. Chapter 19, verse 28. Later, it says, Knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It's finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this is the end. The end of Jesus' life. He, he runs out of breath. And the later verses are quite important. that They establish that Jesus really died. John tells us that the soldiers came breaking the legs of the criminals to ensure they could no longer push up to breathe. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't need to. Verse 34 says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then he says, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. That's really important, because if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is a thing, it was important to demonstrate that Jesus had actually died. But for the soldiers who were standing around, and many others, no doubt, it meant only one thing, Jesus' end. And so they get busy dividing up his clothes. But the way John writes it, he wants us to see more than just an end. He wants us to say there's more here. It's not just an end, it's a goal. Jesus' ministry hasn't just finished. His death has completed it. So Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. God's ancient plans in his moment all coming to fruition. You may have noticed through this chapter that there's all these moments that John says, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. So there's the moment where they cast the lots for Jesus' clothing. Then the moment Jesus thirsts, the fact that his bones aren't broken, like a sort of perfect sacrifice. There's his flesh being pierced. Uh, you could spend some time, and uh, you can look it up this week. It's, it's amazing. Um, seeing where all this stuff was prophesied in the Old Testament, foreshadowing this moment. And the idea is this, this, at this moment, all the great tapestry of God's purposes woven over the centuries is, is finally coming together in this moment. In that sense, a goal is being achieved. But perhaps more significantly than that still, Jesus' death achieves the goal of our salvation. This is Jesus completing his work. John Stott uh, said this. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. So here's what's going on here. Our wrongdoing, it deserves God's justice against us. And on the cross, the sinless Jesus, God the Son, bears our sin and then he suffers the full horror of God's dismay at that sin. But it was finished. He suffered it to the end, all of it. The goal was achieved. 
Our sin may have put him there, but his power has, has dealt with it all. And so the cross is not just something done by us to him, it is something done for us. I was chatting with uh, Roger Penn uh, on Thursday evening. He was remembering how in the past he used to have to work on Good Friday because he works for um, a company that serves branches all across Europe. And uh, there's a branch in Italy uh, where Good Friday is not a holiday. Uh, and the idea, we surmise, Italy is obviously uh, a, you know, a very religious country on one level, uh, but we, we surmised, you know, they thought, oh, Good Friday, it's too dark a day to enjoy. Certainly, the cross is a somber occasion, but actually, once you grasp what it means, Good Friday is good. It's glorious. Um, there was a 19th century Anglican bishop called J.C. Ryle, and he said this, listen very carefully, he said, Take away the cross of Christ, and the Bible is a dark book. Take away the cross of Christ, and the Bible is a dark book. Think about that for a moment. It's a very true paradox. Without the cross, we still face the justice of God without any help. That's dark. But with the cross, the darkness is gone. The cross is light. It's, it's the moment that we're saved. We're saved from our sin, freed from its guilt and its power. It's not just the end. It's the goal. It's achieved. And that's why the cross is just so precious to so many people. That's why Christians walk around with an instrument of torture hanging around their neck. That's a strange thing, isn't it, if you think about it for a moment? But because that is a wonderful, wonderful moment. I wonder whether you know something of, of, the, of the glory, of the preciousness of the cross, you know, when you feel like you've just blown it. But you can say, it is finished. You know, you flipped out unjustifiably at the kids again, or your spouse, or you've soured a friendship through some inexcusable failure, or any number of other things that you just deeply regret, and you can sort of hear the voice of condemnation just rising in you, and you're you're feeling that despair, that self-loathing, you can say, it's finished. It is finished. Christ has died for my sin. My wrongdoing's gone. I'm, I'm accepted by the Lord. Or, or perhaps, you know, when you feel like your world is just sort of hurtling towards breakdown, perhaps your personal circumstances are are really disintegrating. Perhaps what you see on the news, on the world stage, is just gets you really anxious. Perhaps you're worried about the planet. And you can say, it is finished. Not this world or your circumstances are finished, but Jesus has won the victory. The greatest battle between evil and good has already been finished and won victoriously by Jesus. And because of that, our own future is secure. And that's how the cross is so precious. So the end is actually the goal. The cross and the crown, the end and the goal, there are two realities here. We're going to come now to the Lord's Supper. This is an opportunity for us to dwell on the meaning of the cross. And as John uh, leads us through that, perhaps you want to keep hold of those two things, the crown and the goal, and think about what they mean to you personally.
Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.